Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad to have you here this morning, and we trust that God will speak to you where you are and where you are in life, not just where you are in the sanctuary today or out in the wonderful world of the interwebs, but uh, we trust that God will speak to you, that God knows your life, and that God has prepared you and prepared this message in this time that you might hear from him in clear ways, and so we trust him for that and pray for that this morning. We do want to bring your attention to this. I always love when I come in on Sunday mornings and it's like, whoa, red rose. Uh, because red rose means that there is a new baby, that there's been a baby born. And Facebook let me down this time, and I did not see it on the interwebs. Uh, but this is in honor of Eleanor Jane, right? Did I say that right? Yes. Uh, born to Ryan and Jennifer Hatton. So congratulations uh, to the Hattons, to Grandma and Grandpa and the Uncle back there, Bryce. We're so excited for you and to Mom and Dad. God bless you all, and remember to get your flower and the, the Voss. It is all yours, all right? So congratulations. We're excited about that. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we turn our attention now to the Word of God. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. We thank you for your great love with which you have loved us. We thank you for the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, whatever this season is, Lord, as your followers, as, as those that bear your name, Christians, Lord, may we consistently look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, of our faith. Lord, and I think especially now, as, as we stand on the, the precipice of Advent season, of the time where we celebrate your coming, Lord, I pray that you would remind us anew of who you are, of what you've done and of your continued power and presence in our lives. God, I pray that you would speak to us today as we begin anticipating the season of anticipation, and pray that you would speak clearly to us and through me. In Jesus' name, amen. Guess what time it is. It is Christmas season! And I came in, I, I, I woke up this morning, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do, and I had a plan in mind, and I was talking to Rob, and I didn't want to come in too hot, so I, like, it's dear. So if you are super offended by Christmas before uh, Thanksgiving, well, first of all, kind of a sorry, not sorry, you walked into the church with the most Christmassy pastor you've ever met in your life. I challenge anyone. I have to start the Christmas sweaters now, or I will not get through them all. And, and so I toned it down for a little bit of you, for those of you that are like, well, we can't celebrate Thanksgiving with Christmas lights. Uh, I can. I'm thankful for Jesus. Don't know about you, but I think that that's appropriate. And so I wore a Christmas sweater with deer on it. If you love Christmas and you're excited about that, they're reindeer. If, if you're not, it's hunting season, okay? <laughs> so don't shoot me, though, right? Just the messenger. But Christmas is coming, Right? Christmas is here. The, the, the season is here. The lights, the lights have already begun to go up on houses. Mine are up and have been blazing for several days now. And you can see them going up all over town. They may not be on yet. They, I think they just came on this week. But, but the, in a lot of places, the lights are up. My neighbors actually beat me to the punch this year. And two of them put their lights up on our last 70-degree day. But their lights are up but not on yet. Right? They're just prepared for what's coming. They're getting ready for the season of, it's, I find it kind of ironic too, it's because it's the season of anticipation, right? That's Advent, the season leading up to Christmas Day, and that the whole thing is about becoming prepared, and I love that we got prepared for the season in which we're supposed to 
get prepared, right? Some of us are just super type A like that, and it's okay. But the, the season is coming. Ready or not, Christmas season is here. Thanksgiving will be over in just a few days, and you all can stop complaining about holidays infringing upon one another as if that's a thing. But Christmas season is coming. And I, I, this season, we're, we're focusing on what we're calling a family Christmas. As we were looking at the, the, the reality of the, the passages and everything, it all has a familial connection. And there are some elements that maybe we, we look around or look over. But one of the things that I want to be key on, I want to key on in on really big this year as we look at Christmas and we can cr- consider Christmas. Even as I love the lights and I love the sweaters and the Christmas suits and all of the, the things that go along with it. I want to be clear with you here at First Baptist Church, wherever you are, in person, online, that Christmas is about one thing and one thing only when you really break it down. And it's about a son. It is about the Son of God. It is about Jesus. And you know what? I have no problem with people that say happy holidays. There's a lot of great holidays that are going on right now that people celebrate. Good for them. But here at First Baptist Church, we celebrate a particular holiday, and it is Christmas. Jesus' name, Jesus the Christ, is in the name. And so through all of this, I want us, we're going to talk about the familial dynamics and the familial nature of Christmas, but it's all going to focus back on one thing, because the family dynamics don't matter if it's not for the Son. The, The one and only Son of God that came and was born as a baby, that he might live and ultimately die to purchase our pardon. And that's what we're celebrating this Christmas. And so to begin with, as we come into this season, as we anticipate the season of anticipation, I want to look at what what, what maybe the first century Christians would have thought about as they were considering this. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And I feel like this passage is a really appropriate place for us to start, particularly in the season that, that maybe you don't find yourself in the season, but the season of life that I find myself in with all of the insanity and all of the division and all of the discord and all of the frustration and all of the frazzled relationships and all of the things that are on, I, I, I don't know about you, but I could use some extra hope. I could use some extra light. I could use some, some, some extra joy in the world. And so we're going to consider this and see what Isaiah tells us, because he doesn't start super happy, and it's even more rounded. I think this passage really applies to where we are today. So Isaiah 9, starting in verse 1, says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people in walk, walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat... You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, 
To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Brief aside, be honest, how many of you sung that as you read that in the passage? Mm -hmm. I know. I had to work really hard to not say Khalid as I read the words. Sorry, back on task here. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that day on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. A lot of things going on in this passage. A lot of things that applied directly to what was going on. We think of, sometimes we look at these prophecies, these things that we see in the Old Testament, and, and we do a very American thing, and we assume that all of them apply to right now. That they were just for now. And you know what? There's truth to that. That these prophecies, most of them have dual or even tri trifold functionality. That they applied then, they applied later, and then they apply now. So there's a truth to that. But understand that there was a reality that was going on in that time that this applied to. But the truth is we could, in fact, superimpose this kind of passage over just about any time in human history and it would make sense. Uh, times, because it, there is no shortage of time in, in human history where darkness surrounds us, where, where difficulty becomes the, the defining feature of our life, where struggle overwhelms us, and, and where it seems like it's coming in on all sides, and we wonder where we're going to find hope, where we're going to find peace, where we're going to find joy, where we're going to find rescue. And the reality of the human condition is that there never is a time where we're not to some degree in need of rescuing. If we're good at one thing as humanity, it's getting ourselves backed into a corner. It's getting ourselves into trouble. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of Christmas is that we have a God who is exceptionally persistent and exceptionally and exceedingly good to us and exceedingly good at finding us and saving us and taking us to where we need to be. And that's what, that's what Isaiah is announcing here at this time, for this time and also for future times. Isaiah is announcing that God's saving grace is on the way. God's saving grace is on the way. And we see this passage here. If, if we were to go back, and, and I'm, I'm not going to do it today, but if we read through chapter 8, and then we came ahead and we read through the rest of chapter 9, we would realize that this passage here in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 is really somewhat out of place if we think about it. It's, it's, this, it's this bright shining light in the middle of darkness. Because everything that Isaiah is talking about, whether it's in chapter 8 or chapter 9 or chapter 10, all of it is looking forward. Whether it's a few days or a few years, we, we don't really know that, but, but we know that, that he's looking forward. He's prophesying that God says this is what is going to happen. This is the reality, but this is what is coming. In chapters 8, in the back half of chapter 9 into 10, are not exactly good news of great joy. And what we see here, and the encouragement that I take from this is this, that God's grace will find us even in the midst of messes of life. Even those of our own making. God's grace will find us even in the midst of the messes of life, even those of our own making. 
If we look in chapter 8, again, let's, let's talk about this for a brief second. We're not going to read it, but in Isaiah 8, God is telling them through the prophet Isaiah that, that, that he is going to turn them over to the darkness of their own hearts and minds. That the lights are going out, and it's their fault. You want to do your own thing, God says? Go ahead. You want to reject me? There's the door. I'm not going to stop you. You want to go wandering? Fine. But understand that the further you go, the, the darker it's going to get. You want the darkness? It's all yours. It's going to get dark. He's telling them that the, the, the lights are about to go out. The, the, this darkness is about to come in. Then we look at the second half of chapter, uh, chapter 9 and into chapter 10. And, and it gets even more encouraging. Not only is it about to get really dark spiritually, but punishment is coming. I love the imagery on here. If you look through it, it says that the Lord has his hand raised. Like you knew when you were a kid. If you got to the point where it went beyond words to the hand coming up, that the holy backhand was coming. Right? Once the Judy chop has been cocked, there is only one logical conclusion. Follow through. Right? And we look in the, Aaron, my ninja, resident ninja is saying, yes, that's correct. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate that. But the, it says in the passage, I think at least two times, that the Lord has his hand raised. Punishment is not exactly what you want to hear, right? Like, there's darkness, but there's going to be hope. And God's about to bring a holy backhand. Thanks, Isaiah. It's not good news. But in the middle, there's a beauty to this, though, isn't there? That in the middle of the people choosing their own darkness and going their own way, in the middle of anticipating what is inevitable, a coming punishment from the Lord because of their own choices and their own actions, in the middle of these two dark and difficult prophecies, God says, but there's still good things coming. Salvation is still in the middle of this. I'm still here. And I'm sending someone, I'm sending something, I'm sending the only someone that can come and save you. And in the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the punishment, know that I am there and I am working this together for your good and for your ultimate salvation. Now let's move on and continue looking at this. Because he gives us some specific things. He gives us some, some spaces where some of this is going to happen. And he talks, about, he talks about Naphtali and Zebulon ha having been humbled. But then he says that honor is coming to, quote, Galilee of the nations. Now Galilee was, if you look at a map of Israel, you can flip to the back of your Bible if you want to. Galilee was at the northernmost point of Israel. Northernmost point of Israel. What that did for Galilee is it gave it the, the unenviable position of being the place from which most armies would invade Israel. It was the place where invading armies, would boots would first come to the ground. It was awful, also often the place where enemy armies would set up their, their first encampment from which to attack Jerusalem or other major cities. 
So what began happening over time is these soldiers from these different armies, from all of these different nations, would set up occupying forces in Galilee. And then inevitably, when their armies would lose and they would go back home, some of those people would have married wives in Israel. We, we know throughout the Old Testament that that was a tendency of the Is- Israeli people, the Hebrew people, to intermarry, even though God had said not to. And we realize that in the modern era, that doesn't matter. But at that time, it was important. So what would happen is a lot of these soldiers, and these intermarried couples would stay there in Galilee, and Galilee began to lose its, its inherent Hebrewness. It lost the integrity of who they were. And so, so Galilee was really considered a dirty backwater. It was a dirty backwater filled with all kinds of people. It was a place of incredible compromise. This title we see here, even in Isaiah, Galilee of the Nations, is decidedly negative. It is a pejorative. He is saying this, letting them know that this, and there's an irony to it again. We're going to say that word a lot because there's a whole lot of irony in this passage. But here we have Galilee of the Nations, and God says in the past, this region, this northern region has been incredibly humbled. But in the future, God is going to take this, what you think of as a dirty backwater that is irredeemable, God's going to take it, and that's going to be the point from which God is going to have his light dawn. It was the place from which darkness dawned, but God is going to make his grace emerge from this most unlikely of places. The place of humiliation will eventually become the place of greatest honor. The place of humiliation will become the place of greatest honor. Now, we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but where did he call home? Where was his base of operations located out of? It was Galilee, Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? We can look in the Bible, and there are all kinds of references that show us that they didn't have a high view of this northern part of the kingdom. But where does God's salvation begin to dawn? Where does the ministry, we talked about it even a couple of weeks ago, it is out of Galilee, this place of Israel's continual humiliation, the place from which the, the, the darkness would emerge was the place, the same place from which the light was going to dawn. The same place from which enemies would encamp and invade Israel was going to be the place of God's invasion into human history. God God could have gone anywhere, but God chooses the place of greatest shame to be the place where he brings about the greatest glory. Isn't that just like God? To take the thing in our lives, to take the reality, to take the difficulty and the darkness and make that the place where he, he most clearly reveals himself and demonstrates his redemptive power, his good grace, and his great love. He goes on in verse 2 and we see that a season of light is on the horizon. In verse 2, it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. That's interesting, isn't it? Because he's just talked about this prophetic thing. Darkness is coming, but light has already dawned. Punishment is coming, but light has already dawned. This demonstrates that, that even in the midst of our failure, that God never leaves us. That, that no matter our situation, it is never without hope. That God's glory is still there to be seen. Even as the prophet warns of coming darkness, he announces the presence of a great light. 
Again, where, where is it that light shines the brightest? The other day, I tried to put my lights up, and I was, I was doing them on the house, and you have to do the, that thing you do at the beginning. Last year, I made the mistake of hanging the lights first and then plugging them in. That's a big mistake. That's fine when you're on the ground, but my roof is like 25, 30 feet in the air, and homie does not like the ladder, you know? So I'd put the lights up, I plugged them in, and I realized, of course, it's never on the end. It's right in the dead stinking center. And so I had to go up and take all the lights down and put them down. Now, if I had checked the lights, I to this year, I went outside and I checked the lights first. But as I was checking them, it was broad daylight. So I couldn't tell. Are the lights on? Are the lights off? So I'd take them inside. Well, there was too much light in the house. So I had to take them upstairs into my closet and close the door, run an extension cord into my closet to make enough darkness so that when I plugged in the light, I could see, bam, all the lights are there. Yep, we're good. Time to climb on the roof. When is it that the lights shine? My lights are on my house, but they're not shining right now. Why? Because it does no good to shine lights in the middle of the light. It's already light outside. When does light make the biggest impact? Isn't it in the darkness? You know, I think about that even now. Like, it is easy for me, I'll be honest, I am over where we are in the world. I am discouraged. I am frustrated. I feel like things, at at times, if I'm honest, I feel like things have gotten to the point in some ways and places where, and I, I repent of this, where it's beyond hope. But then we read this, and we see that it's in the deepest of darknesses that God's light shines the brightest and that at the perfect time, when it seemed like humanity was beyond, beyond restoration, when, when, when hope was gone out of Israel, we know the, the story where it's going that God sent Jesus, the light of the world, the light of life, that light might shine in the darkness. And light may not comprehend it, but light sure, the darkness sure isn't going to overcome it. Darkness may not get it, but it also won't stop it. Praise God for his goodness, his persistence, and his grace. In the midst of our mess, and even our own deep darkness, we know that the light of life has come and continues coming. But he goes on. We see the season of light on the horizon. In verse 3, he says, You have enlarged the nations and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoiced at harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing plunder. He's making an announcement that God's family would soon be expanding. It's not, there are two meanings that come in here when it talks about you have um, increased, enlarged the nation, and increased their joy. First, there, there's a proprietary reference that would be to Israel in particular. That God would increase the faithful remnant. Throughout the Old Testament, there, there's this principle of the remnant. That, that no matter what happened, no matter how broken Israel got, no matter how far they wandered from God, that God would preserve at least one piece, a, a, a portion of his people, a pocket of his children that would, would maintain their integrity and would be faithful to him. That throughout human history, God has always maintained the remnant. And as the, as the name would suggest, remnant, that it's not the majority. And Isaiah says, hey, but, but you're going to enlarge the nation. This faithful remnant, it, it's going to get bigger. But, but there's something else in here. Because the word that is used here is not actually in the singular. It is nation, but it carries with it the idea of multiple nations coming together. 
This idea that it's, it's not just the, the nation of Israel, but all nations are going to benefit from what's going to, to come. That God's family would open up. And we even see that at the beginning. It, it makes sense in context, right? Because if we go back to the beginning, it is Galilee of the nations. Galilee of the Gentiles. And God is going to bring about this great honor in this place. That, that the, the light was going to shine in this place on both the Gentiles and the Jews. And God was going to open up the, the avenues into his family. So it makes sense as we come down that you're going to enlarge. You're going to enlarge the nation and increase their joy. Isn't isn't that what the angel said? That I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all nations. For all peoples. You see, Jesus wasn't just for them. The light that was going to come was going to dispel all the darkness and make available the, the, the opportunity to enter into the family that had not been open before. The fortunes of the people would be re- reversed. Hunger and starvation is replaced with plenty, and those who had been plundered would receive plunder. Sa- sadness would be replaced with salib- celebration as this good news of great joy came to all nations. We see this finding its ultimate fulfillment even later. We see it finding a a fulfillment as the avenues open up in Jesus, but we see the final fulfillment in Revelation. See, that's the thing about Christmas is we see something that has come. We see something that is now, but we see something that's still to come. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We see this ultimate fulfillment. This salvation is all peoples from all nations and all tongues and all tribes and and everybody has an opportunity to enter into God's family through faith. And, and, And Isaiah is just now beginning to put some of that together. Sure, we could go back, and and the reality is that pieces of that prophecy had been there from the very beginning, from the fall, and from the the promise to Abraham. But here, Isaiah makes it clear that there's going to be this saving grace that's going to come, that's going to open up avenues for all nations to come into the family of God. Oh, the children, children of Israel, they have their part in this, but but there's there's opening for you, too, to come and become a child of God. We're going to look at that more in detail in coming weeks. And now things make a turn. This is all good news. This is all good and fine. But, but Isaiah begins to take a turn and makes things kind of atypical. And Isaiah announces that victory would come not only from the unlikeliest of places, but in the most unlikely of ways. That victory would come not only from the most unlikely of places, Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations, but in the most unlikely of ways. In verse 4, it says, it talks about the day of Midian's defeat. Well, what does that mean? What is he talking about when he talks about the day of Midian's defeat? Some some of you have a Bible and you can look at your references, but if you think about your Bible history and you think back to Judges, the day of Midian's defeat is a reference to Gideon. It's it's the day that God, remember the story of Gideon? God takes Gideon who's hiding away in a a wine cellar because he's afraid because of these these armies around him that keep invading. So he's he's hiding in a wine press to to thresh some wheat so his family has something to eat. And the angel shows up and says, hey, greetings to you, mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, you got the wrong dude. I am not the one. 
I am not the one. I'm the kid brother of the kid brother of the kid brother. Go find one of them. I am not. You do see me hiding, threshing some wheat to make some bread. I am kitchen help. I am not your guy. I am not your guy. And God's like, no, 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 no. You're, the angel says to him, no, you're, you're it. You're, you're going you're gonna to deliver my people. And so Gideon's like, all right. Sure, I'm gonna. He puts out the fleeces. We won't go too far in the story. We know that jump ahead. And, and Gideon calls the army to himself. And Gideon's looking at the people, and he's like, "Odds aren't great, but I like this. We can do something with this." And God's like, "You got too many people." And so God has a series of tests, right? And in the series of tests, God breaks it down. And Gideon ultimately is taking hundreds of men, a handful of men, against tens of thousands of the most powerful army in the world. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but it is, it, is only, it is so like God, isn't it? Like, here are odds that are against you, but it's not good enough because if, if we do it this way, you might be able to say, well, I just beat the odds. God says, no, 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 let's strip this way down. Let's strip this down so far that there is no way that this can happen without me. The story is even better because it goes on, and they beat the, the Midianites by breaking up some, some glass vases and, and shining a light and shouting, ah! And, and they just kill themselves. And, and God's like, see, I did it. You win. Woo! There's no way to, dis, to mistake who, who won in the great day of, of the fall of Midian, right? That was God's victory. That wasn't Gideon's victory. That was God's victory. And God says, it's going to be the same. When, when I come and... and and I bring my salvation, and I bring the light that is going to alleviate your darkness and going to cover for your punishment, it, it is going to be miraculous just as it was in the day of Midian, and there will be no question who did it. That it was the Lord God Almighty. Only God could have done this. And then he goes on in verse 5. He talks about this victory in the day of Midian. Verse 5, he talks about these tools of war, right? Every warrior's boot used in battle every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire the, the tools of war would be destroyed as they're no longer necessary a, a live enemy so suppose these are these are tools of the enemy a live enemy is not going to let you burn their weapons their tools their equipment unless the battle's already over it could only be burned after victory was achieved. Also, burning military gear indicates that it's not going to be used in the future. You didn't burn military equipment usually. You kept it. The only time you burned military equipment was when you were devoting and dedicating it to the Lord because the victory had been so totally complete. The battle belongs to the Lord. And God lays all this out. And he's going to continue on. But, but we see here that God's grace is on the way in a big way. That God is about to do an amazing thing. That God's deliverance is consistently on the move. That the light is dawning. Even as the darkness is coming, the light has dawned. And a great light is making a move. And God is doing this amazing thing to bring about the redemption of his people. And to open up the doors so those that are outside can come in and become part of the family. God is doing an amazing thing. Now, ladies and gentlemen, God's saving grace is on the way. I know we look outside, and it may be easy for us to become discouraged and distracted. It, it may be easy for us to become depressed, but understand there is reason for great joy. There is reason for hope, because the great God of the universe is still moving. He is still working. He is still on his throne. 
And, and even better yet, what Isaiah was prophesying about that was going to be a thing to come has already come about. I can wear Christmas sweaters whenever I want because Christ has come and Christ has king and I don't care what holiday we're in, that's worth celebrating. But we see this counterintuitive methodology of, of God's rescue, right? It continues on. Because salvation comes not with a soldier. Salvation comes with a son. Salvation comes with a son. The solution to the messes God's children had made, the solution to the sin of all of humanity, would be a child. Now, we, we know the rest of the story, right? It's hard for us to remove this from our mind. But, but for you and I, we know that Jesus becomes a man. He dies on the cross and brings about salvation. We're going to put a pin in that and come back to it because even that is ridiculous. That God brings about the light of life through a death? That resurrection comes through crucifixion? That power, the, the power of God is made most manifest through weakness? And we see God prophesying through Isaiah that that is going to be the case even now. That, that, that here we, we see that deep darkness covers the land. Starvation and hunger are coming upon you. Oppression, burden are going to define the age. And armies are going to stand against them. And God's plan of action, God's crack plan to, to free them and fix it all is a kid. That is insanity. Verse 6, a child will be born to you. A son will be given to us. Brothers and sisters, I know we know the rest of the story, but let's, let's, let's put the gospel, and, and hear what I'm saying, this is not heresy, this is not blasphemy. Let's put the gospel to the side, meaning that we don't know what we know. If you're getting ready for deep darkness, is what you really want to hear is God's going to send a kid to help you out. No! No! Send in the cavalry, not just one man, but a bunch of men on horses armed to the teeth. <clears throat> not a brand newborn baby boy. Woo, what am I supposed to do with this? You think we're going to cry our enemy to death? Sleep deprivation. Aaron and Andy are like, yes, preach. <laughs> And then the irony begins to swell, right? A kid is going to bring about this great victory. This kid would carry the weight of the world. The weight of the government would be upon his shoulders. Now, there are two ways that we can take this. The initial assumption is normally, in conjunction with the Davidic reference that comes in verse 7, that, that this son, this child, would have the, the ability, the power, and the authority to rule and reign. That the government being on his shoulders indicates his authority and ability to handle the pressures of ruling. That he would have all he would need to rule and reign. That he would be indeed sovereign. We know that to be true, right? That Jesus is the sovereign ruler of the universe. I believe that. That's good theology. That's great. I don't think that's what this verse is talking about. 
The, the, the government being on his shoulders kind of actually attaches back to the, the rod of burden being, the yoke and burden and bar being across their backs, this oppression. That, that Jesus would, in fact, this kid, this son, would take that rod of oppression upon himself. And it's not that he would carry this heavy weight, but in, rather that he would be crushed by it. That the weight of the government would be on his shoulders. That the penalty of our sin would crush him, would be paid for as he took the penalty upon himself. Viewed in light of the, the preceding verses and, and, and the inherent weakness of a child, Isaiah is making the crazy claim that God would bring about victory through the weakness of a solitary child, a single son. We know this to be true. Let's bring the gospel back into it. We know that Jesus didn't bring about our salvation as expected, right? Not to get off the holiday, because I know some of you are very serious about that, but Easter's coming, right? And in Easter, we have Palm Sunday, <clears throat> where the people are all lining the streets with the palm branches and their coats, and they're singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you know why they're doing it? We've talked about it. Because they believed that Jesus was going to come in with military might and wipe out the Roman oppressors. And they were ready for the revolution. <clears throat> he would have the right and rule to reign and the ability. And Jesus is like, thanks for the entry. I appreciate the introduction, but that's not how I'm going to do this. And rather than coming in with a big stick, he hung on a tree. And he brought about our salvation through his sacrifice. The government, the weight of the government indeed fell upon his shoulders. The message of Christmas, much like the gospel, from a human perspective, is pure craziness. Salvation is coming through a kid. But the irony continues to abound this kid would have amazing titles, right? He would be called Wonderful Counselor. Now remember, you have to understand this in the context that it's being told. So these titles are applied to this child at birth. That he would be called the Wonderful Counselor. Isaiah is, is, is intentionally making this reference and getting outside the bounds of human thinking. He very easily could have talked about the, the, the princely nature of Jesus, and, and he could have gone all revelation on us, right, and talked about him having the, the, the name tattooed on his, his waist and, or his thigh and having a sword and riding on a white horse. He could have done all that imagery, but instead Isaiah's like, God's going to send a kid, he's going to send a son, and he's going to be your wonderful counselor. He's going to be all these things. Well, what does he mean by wonderful counselor? That, that he would be all wise, that this child would be the one to advise humanity and point the path forward through the darkness. Children are little. Children are ignorant. It doesn't take much having conversation. There's a reason they have the show. Kids say the darndest things, right? Kids be crazy. I mean, think about it. You have to tell a kid, hey, you see that electric thing where the power comes out? Don't put your finger in there. That, that thing that's hot, don't touch that. And sometimes they touch it, and they know that it's hot, and they're like, well, maybe I made a mistake the first time and did it wrong. Let me do it again. Kids have a lot to learn, but here, God through Isaiah says this kid would be called the wonderful counselor. God's wise solution, God's wise savior is a child. 
He would be called Mighty God. He would be all-powerful. This, this is a title that's reserved for the Lord. A title re- reserved for the Lord of hosts. That, and, and Isaiah clarifies this even further as we go on. The context of Isaiah tells us that this is what he's referring. That Isaiah, in fact, is making the claim here that this child would be God incarnate. God in the flesh. That, that God Almighty, the mighty, all-powerful God of the universe, would come as a baby. He could come, he's the creator, right? Have you ever thought about that? Like God is, he could have created something totally new and unknown and amazing. Like if I'm God and I'm sending something to set things straight, I'm coming as a dragon, right? I'm, I'm coming as something big and ferocious to lay down the hammer. There's a reason I'm not God because I wouldn't be very benevolent and redemptive either, but that's something for later. But God comes not in the form of this powerful thing to force himself on the world, but as a child that needs to be received. The beauty of God's grace. He would be called everlasting father. Now this is not what we think it is oftentimes. This is not a claim to divinity, to divinity as father God, but rather a regal title. It was a title that was often used to refer to kings who served as benevolent providers and protectors for the realm. Which still has some irony to it, doesn't it? That he doesn't come as the king, but comes as a son, and he would be the benevolent protector and the one providing the someone and something that, that only can survive with benevolent protection and provision. A baby is going to be the one that's going to bring about this divine provision and protection. He would be called the prince of peace. Now, there's something in this that we often overlook. He could have been come, come, come as the king of war. He didn't. He came as the prince of peace. He would bring about God's great victory, the, the great victory God had promised, overcoming all enemies. But he would do so through bringing about peace with his enemies rather than war. And praise God that he does, brothers and sisters. Because does it not say in Romans that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were still enemies of God, he brought about our redemption. Thank you, Jesus, that he came as the prince of peace and not the prince of power and war. He came to bring about redemption and restoration and not destruction and devastation. He came to bring peace rather than immediate punishment, which we deserved. Now, these are all grand titles. Don't belong to a kid. makes me think of when I was in high school. When I was in high school, I, had a, I ran cross country, and, and we had one runner that ran with us. Um, we're we're going to call him, for the sake of innocence, the fact that he might be watching, we're going to call him Dave, right? We're, Dave's a pretty good name, right? Good, strong name. So Dave, Dave was a runner on my cross country team. And, and Dave, Dave was not built like you would expect a runner to be built. Let's be honest, there was nothing athletic about Dave. Like, couch to 5K was about all Dave had going for him. And Dave would have admitted that to you, to your face. He would talk about it on the, as we're running. He'd talk about, you know, this would be a lot easier for me if someone would hold a Twinkie out there. That was Dave. Loved him. He was the funniest guy to run with. was great. But Dave, Dave was not what you would call fast. I mean, Dave, strictly speaking, was not, he did not race. Dave would run a little while and walk a little while. 
But we used to call Dave our most valuable runner, our MVR. Dave, the, this every man, five foot, five foot four, 250 pounds, our most valuable runner. Well, why do we call him that? We had a conference championship one year. And we ran, and it was against our, our rival. We got to the end of the race, and they start scoring things out. And all the way down to runner number six, it is a dead even score. Dead even. So if you know how running goes, you score the top five, and then six and seven are tiebreakers. So it came down our seventh runner. And that day, because of injuries, our seventh runner was Dave, Mr. Couch to 5K himself. And, and, and so we come in, we're like, man, we're, Dave had finished dead last. De- we had been done for forever by the time Dave finally crossed the finish line. And so we're looking at this thinking, we just lost. But we didn't. Because Dave finished. And you know what? The other team didn't have a seventh runner. So Dave, that day, was our most valuable runner. From that day on, until he graduated high school, we called Dave our MVR. On, on his letter jacket, underneath his name, it said, MVR. And there was incredible irony to it, because you look at Dave and you're like, that, that dude is not your most valuable runner. Well, that day he was. Incredibly unlikely. Never in a thousand years would you have guessed that that was going to be the one that decided the race. Same thing is true with Jesus. The truth with Dave is is not only was Dave our best hope for victory that day, Dave was our only hope for victory that day. And the same thing is true for us. Uh, The baby boy, the, the child born to us, the son that we've been given, was not just our best hope for salvation. As unlikely as it may seem, he is our only hope for salvation. The impossibility of it only serves to validate the truth that only God could have done this. But how is he going to save us? Well, we see as it goes on to the end of verse 7 that the son will save through the passion his love produces. The son will save through the passion his love produces. The son would accomplish God's great promise not through overwhelming force, but through sacrificial love. Look at the end of verse 7. It says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It could have said, the strength of the the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The the overwhelming force of the Lord Almighty, the supernatural power of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. But it doesn't. It says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What does that mean? What's the significance of that? The, The Hebrew word translated zeal in this passage is actually related to an Arabic word. They're They're closely connected. And it means to become intensely red in the face. It describes a person becoming flush with emotion. It's actually used several times in the Old Testament. In Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4, it's the emotion that drives human effort and energy to accomplish things in life. It's it's described in that passage as jealousy. In Proverbs 6.34, it describes the, a husband's jealousy and, and passion for the love of his wife. In Song of Songs 8.6, it's the love in, in the hearts of a bride and a groom. 
in their, their devotion and attachment to one another. Zeal is a deep, passionate love that drives one to bold action. And the love of God is most clearly seen through the passion of Jesus Christ. The passion of Jesus Christ. There, there, there is an emotional quality to that, but you know what passion means in Latin, don't you? It means suffering. That the love of God is, is most clearly seen through the weight coming down on the shoulders of Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior, the Son that was given to us. And the Son suffered on the cross in our place to save us, to bring about the redemption that we so desperately need. Victory came through what seemed like the Son of God's defeat. Jesus is the physical manifestation of God's love and the vehicle, the primary vehicle of his grace. We sang about it earlier. We know the verse, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That the most, the most precious gift that God could give to us was his son. That through our belief in him, we would not perish but have everlasting life. That the light of life would shine in and through us and for us. Commentator Raymond C. Ortland Jr. writes, God's answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. Allow me to please read that portion again, will you? God's answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus, the Son of God, a baby born to us, given to us, salvation through sacrifice, not overwhelming force. God demonstrated his love by sending his Son in order that we might also become sons and daughters of God. We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, or next week or the next, as we talk about Joseph in John 1, 12, it says, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, the name of Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of a human decision or, or a husband's will, but born of God. When we put our faith in the child that was promised, the, the God that became man, the son that was sacrificed, we are not only saved, we are brought into the family. And Christmas becomes, a, the family affair of Christmas becomes about more than the trapping society has, but it becomes about the hope of the coming of God. Christmas becomes about the eternal light of God shining brightly in and through us, that hope might never dis disappear, that despair might never fully overcome, that darkness does not win, that even in the midst of the most hopeless of situations, there is reason for joy. There is reason for celebration because the light shines and the darkness has not overcome it. In this season, the lights begin to shine. And we sing songs reminding us of the great joy and the unspeakable gift of love that God sent through a child. Through his son. Through a baby given to us. And we celebrate knowing that he has come, but also knowing that he is coming again, that our family might be whole and together forever in his glorious presence.
Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace to us. I thank you for the hope of Christmas that is coming. I thank you for the joy that comes through understanding and knowing of the goodness of your son and the great gift of love that you have given us through the child born to us, the son that was given, and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. God, may we this Christmas season rest in the light that comes through the salvation that comes through the Son. May we wait patiently for the Son to come, understanding that the Son of God has come, He has risen, and life and light are in Him to bring hope to our darkness. May you find us in the midst of our mess, and as unlikely as it seems, may you help us to make a way to the other side, and we will give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.